0: Hi, I'm Paul Shrimp.
1: And I'm Jeffrey Roach.
0: Welcome to Microdosing, where we look at small, specific things, such as a product, business, or person, that represents a bigger trend in healthcare. In this series, we'll be focused on the healthcare labor shortage, and I'm excited to team up with Jeffrey, who's a prominent leader when it comes to all things people in healthcare.
1: Thanks, Paul. And some say it's not just a labor shortage, but also a healthcare labor crisis. In this series, we have a lot of wonderful conversations lined up that gets at exactly why this isn't just a labor issue, but rather a multi-dimensional one around employee experience, digitization of workflows, and new business models to make healthcare workers' lives better, healthcare companies more stable, and ultimately deliver better quality of care to all patients.
0: We hope you enjoy.
1: Today we're joined by Dr. Dan Wieberg, nurse, entrepreneur, innovator, the voice of healthcare innovation at DrNurseDan.com. Dan, it's so wonderful to, to see you. Welcome. And I'm going to get started with a little bit about your background, what you've done and, and uh, what brings you into this important yeah. discussion today. Um, so
2: I'm a nurse, a ER and trauma nurse in, in my core. My spirit animal is MacGyver. And I've spent my career trying to connect leadership, technology, and the future of healthcare together in weird dynamic ways. And I've done that at big health systems like Kaiser Permanente and and Ascension in Ohio State and uh, smaller companies, startups like Trusted Health and my own my own consulting business. I'm always trying to push the healthcare world forward. I feel like we're about 30 years behind and try and do that from an evidence-based way. I um, did my master's and PhD in healthcare innovation at Arizona State, go devils, and um, try and bring that those insights to an industry that in many cases are laggards in the
1: adoption of new things. I always wonder if, if uh, Dr. Michael Crow has paid you to <laughs> say go uh, go devils because uh, I feel like every time I talk to you there's always something about her I paid him but uh, <laughs> you know we'll leave that uh, um, you know I'm curious Dan obviously to your point if there's one thread that has always stayed with you it has been how to ensure that nurses are appreciated valued and respected within the healthcare system at all levels and as a nurse entrepreneur innovator and somebody who passionately speaks out on all aspects of nursing, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about the work you do, particularly in consulting, um, just to give our uh, you know our listeners a, a stronger sense of what exactly you're doing, uh, because you do really innovative work at Kaiser and really innovative work at other healthcare systems. Can you talk a little bit more about that
2: yeah before i started being a consultant i was sort of an entrepreneur with the organizations that i worked with and so i spent seven and a half years at kaiser on what was called an innovation and advanced technology team and there we were scouting the latest tech whether it was from the apples and the googles or the startup company with the two people in the garage we were always scanning what was happening and then We were trying to see what we could bring in to add value to clinicians. And specifically my role was translating technology and nursing into some sort of usable workflow or test or proof of concept. So that's really how it started. And then as I grew through my leadership roles and experience in different aspects of both operations, technology, and education side of clinicians, it's really bringing that together. I really enjoy helping systems figure out what the next thing is and that's sometimes that's helping facilitate a strategy session where we bring in frontline executive managers directors all together and we figure out the next five years Um, recently was working with a large client on assessing the opportunities and gaps they have related to a flexible workforce model and using my staffing lens I grew at trusted health there Uh, and just recently signed on with another uh, big academic medical center to figure out how do they build a nursing center of excellence and, um, and really combine AI, informatics, education, research and operations together to actually make a, a system that advances nursing practice across, I think eight, eight hospitals there.
0: I would love to get your take because as Jeffrey and I have gotten deeper in these conversations and understood the situation that we're in with this labor crisis, there's obviously an intersection between the people and a variety of technology and digital solutions. What I'm finding fascinating, and this is an opinion, it's skewed by my observations, it feels like there's an unhealthy relationship between nurses and technology and innovation. It's almost as if there's a cultural um, pushback on anything that's new or promised to make their lives better but would love to get your thoughts Is like, is that a valid opinion? Is that pervasive? How does that emerge? But like no other industry do you roll something out and people hate it before they even try it.
2: Yeah, um, you hit it right on the head and there's some history to that and I think that's what drives it. Traditionally, especially for nursing, t- they have not been asked or brought to the table to help design these technologies. And the number one sort of catalyst to this, the latest sort of technology rollouts, and it's been around for a while, is something like a, an electronic medical record. It was designed to be a billing system, and both physicians and nurses had no say in the workflow of how this thing was going to go. And so now it's rolled out, and it, it really disrupted the way that nurses could care for patients, it got in the way and like physically got in the way, um, as well as mentally. So I think that started the pushback. And then every time there's a new promise, it doesn't ever deliver. It's not designed a lot of times. And I was talking to a big company uh, recently who's built a physician centric, um, voice system and it was, you know, automated charting and all this stuff. And they're like, we're going to take that physician, you know, product, and we're going to roll it out to nurses. I'm like, it's completely different. The workflows are different. Their, their thought process is different. The way they want to use it is different and you can't just plug and play it. And that sort of nursing gets a second, you know, the second uh, fiddle to all that stuff. And so I think that has just built up this resistance over time, but you can see if someone actually delivers something that nurses love, that's 4 million people in the healthcare system that will adopt it instantly and make, make that thing, you know, the next, whatever billion dollars, Bezos, you know, Amazon. So I think really intentionally including nurses in the system is really what the barrier has been. And when I talk to tech bros, (laughs) they have no clue what nurses do. They don't want, they want an MD on their board, even though their product touches nurses, I think there's a disconnect there that just builds sort of distrust.
1: Dan, I'm curious, you spoke a little bit to this, but how did we get here? Why are we truly in such a crisis around workforce? But you can go to nursing, but feel free. And I mean, you do have a title called Provocator. So, you know, let us know your real thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: um, we got here because we had fractures in the fault line before COVID, and COVID just broke them wide open. COVID was the 8.0 magnitude earthquake. And so it just split the fault lines. And we had poor staffing before. We had burnout. We had overworked. We had people working seven seven shifts in a row. We had poor planning and ability to get people and train people and assess their competencies. All of that existed before. And then we had a pandemic that required us to escalate care 15x, and we couldn't do it. And then, so I think that's really why we got here, is we thought we were just humming along. We'd hack it together. we could Band-Aid things. And then until we couldn't. And so coming out of the pandemic, we really have to rethink things. And I keep seeing, well, we need to recruit and retain. Well, there's only a finite pool of people to do that. And so we need to rethink entire care models. We need to give superpowers to clinicians with technology. We need to think about what are the roles doing the work, not just go back to where we were and also back wasn't great. And so I think we just sort of we have to build forward. We got to take the Netflix approach of like, let's go invest in Blu-ray and make the future we want. And Instead of Blockbuster and build more stores that people aren't going to go to and charge late fees.
1: Dan, I want to ask you to go a little deeper, though, because um, telling healthcare leaders in the existing model today that we need to do that probably isn't going to do much. So what do we truly need to do from a leadership perspective to make the necessary changes to what is a what what is pretty broken?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I think we need to get our head out of our ass. Um... <laughs> I think that's number one. I, I but I do honestly think. I mean, of many of the healthcare leaders that are struggling have grown up in an industrial model, and we have to challenge that. We have to challenge the idea that service lines are the way to go. And you know we like we need to ramp up our so oh, our service line. Service lines are, don't allow you to have a flexible labor force. You hire people into one unit. They work there for the rest of their lives and they never leave it. Like no other industry does that. They move people around, they cross train them, they give them the skills that where they can be more flexible to, to work on multiple projects. And so we have to think of our workforce like that. And instead of hiring into these these service lines and keeping people in these linear sort of roles and not moving them around, we have to, I think, blow that idea up. I think the second thing is we have to realize that the physician first model may not be as sustainable as we thought it was. And to look at what are the roles that actually need to touch our patients at which time. And so maybe that's, maybe you need a nurse instead of a primary care physician. And how do we alleviate some of those um, artificial barriers we've created of who needs to own you know, the patient care model. And I think the last thing is you, we you got to blow up the, in, the payment model for specifically nurses, but I think clinicians across the board, this sort of $20 an hour to pay a nurse to work seven shifts in a row and save people and go into the room in COVID while everyone has, was waiting outside of it, doesn't make sense. And so what are the reimbursement models as well as the pay and incentive to really smart people for doing the work that they really love doing?
0: That's great. Now, I'd love to kind of take that and um, get some more concrete examples, because there's a lot of big ideas. Some of these are macro, and I'm trying to be a little bit more empathetic and sympathetic with the CEO of a hospital, or at least the typical one, which is if I'm CEO of a hospital, I've likely been working in a hospital and running one, and everything I know is based on how hospitals run in 20 years, and now here comes a couple of schmucks saying, you gotta run it completely different. And I haven't met too many hospital CEOs going, you're right. I want to run a completely different business model that I'm educated on. But but Dan, you get to intersect with a very fascinating dimension of healthcare leaders that have some of that DNA. And, And like, like what is that DNA that you're seeing with a variety of healthcare leaders that are seeing the forest through the trees that are letting themselves be a little vulnerable and uncomfortable, but I just don't think the typical mindset and the, composition of today's hospital CEOs are going to want to walk away from the warm blanket and take on a different business model and say, you're right, I got to blow things up. I don't see a risk tolerance in, in most hospital CEOs like that. No,
2: agreed. I've had the pleasure of working or the privilege of working at Kaiser Permanente, which I honestly think is one of the models that the future of healthcare needs to adopt. And you know, they're not paying me <laughs> to be on this, this uh, podcast by any means, but... It's that model of self-insured, of a health plan, as well as hospitals, and the ability to focus your dollars on preventative care and um, innovation and technology-based care, instead of just trying to right-size the number of people that come through your emergency department and your procedural areas so that you can generate revenue. And so I think that is the model that we have to start thinking about. And you're seeing a lot of systems try and copy that now. Providence has a health plan now, and Mayo Clinic is talking about it, and Intermountain, and Ascension, and all these other systems are sort of trying to put together that health plan side that gives them a different revenue source in order to do business model innovation. I think if the if the CEO is trying to get back to the fee-for-service, even though we're in a value-based system, the fee-for-service volume, you know, increase the screening so we can do more surgery type thing, that's not going to land well. And it's not landing well. And you're going to have the Amazons and others that are going to come in and be able to, to put resources across the needs that patients really have and take business away from you. So I i that's still sort of big like how do you become a kaiser if you're a small rural hospital somewhere you're not but i think thinking about partnerships with those type of organizations that can do a revenue share around prevention and technology-based care and then you're the system that when people need to go to a facility you're there i think that's the way we have to move forward
0: yeah when i think about value-based care it simply has to be how do how does an organization make money Mm -hmm. off me being healthy and Kaiser Permanente, if I was a member, makes money off yep. me being healthy. that's win-win and and outside of that we're, we're seeing that conflict.
1: Yeah. you know dan i'm I'm curious to get your take obviously on some myths and what you think are incorrect questions and misnomers around the crisis. But before we get there, I want to ask you one of the things that we're continuing to hear from healthcare leaders as it relates to filling these positions is, we don't have enough clinical experience. You know, we don't have enough clinical educators. We can't, you know, bring all these students in. Uh, whether it's nursing, whether it's uh, surge tech, whether it's you name it. How do you yeah, fix that?
2: it's not an easy question, but I think there's two pieces to it. One, we need to shift nursing education at the academic level to potentially stop creating generalists. And that's what really what, from a nursing perspective, that's what we do. But in medicine too, we create generalists. You graduate medical school, you know, a little bit about a lot of stuff. Same with nursing. You're enough to pass the boards, but you're not really specialized. And then you look at what the hospitals need. They need specialists. They need the level four NICU nurse. They need the ER nurse. They need, uh, they also need med-surg nurses, sort of that generalist piece, but they need med-surg nurses that know how to take patients that are sicker and on vents and in COVID and that kind of thing. And so um, I think we have to shift that 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 front pipeline of what are we training to, and maybe we can help specialize a little bit so they graduate with competencies where they can hit the ground running. The other side is, you're right, in health systems, the first group that gets cut in budget when you lose $1.7 billion, like I'm reading Providence did, they cut educators because they many times it's seen as not a value add. That that is a problem, and I think we need to figure out what's that transition to practice. For me, There's also the issue of we see clinical experience in years instead of what are the specific skills, knowledge, and competencies a person has. So we don't ever individual it, like, well, you've just been a nurse for a year, you can't work in X, Y, Z place. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, I started off as a new grad in the ER and I got certified before my first year anniversary as an ER nurse, which usually takes three or four years. So I think we have to individualize this skill assessment and put people where their passion is, and I think we could help fix that a little bit. But if we just look at, well, you're a new grad, you can only go here for a year and earn your stripes and then you can disperse out. Those type of old models are really just going to continue to break what we have. We're
1: going to move to magic wand time because you did cover quite a bit of things that I think are helpful. If everyone that's listening was able to take one action relating to this crisis around labor, what would you think it needs to be? Oh man.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's going to be big, but I think it's fundamental. We need to embrace team-based care we, these silos of I'm a physician, you can't be a nurse practitioner, you can't. PAs are under our license. That kind of stuff needs to go away. The, if we embrace it as a team, we can overcome a lot of these labor pieces because we've siloed work off. And if we unsilo it and we use the right skill and the top of license, I think we can really do that well and solve this without having to throw more people at the problem.
0: And then the next question is, as we, we try to stay optimistic, there's so much to, right. to, to criticize if we go all around it. We stay optimistic, and we're also realistic. Uh, you know, ten years from now, what does the world look like if we are doing the right things, making the right moves, and are being pragmatic around what can happen in ten years? What is that? What's that? Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I think um, I think there's an opportunity to have the disruptors that are coming in, the Apples and Googles and Amazons that are really trying to push a different way of thinking about healthcare, both from a, you know an ignorant standpoint, but also in a you know we are tired of the old way and partner them with the legacy system and i think in 10 years if you could take the ai um, telehealth sort of nurse first model that amazon potentially could do and link that with the best hospital care ever you could have a system that would outperform any of the high-performing systems at the moment and i think right now it's this adversarial (laughs) view of all of that stuff but i think there's some awesome opportunities for partnership that could really build systems that are focused on wellness, that incentivize wellness, but also deliver the acute and emergency and surgical care that is always going to be needed in the population. So my hope is that's where we end up in 10 years, that there's some sort of awesome system of all of these players sort of playing together.
1: If there's one thing that you feel does not get discussed when we talk about healthcare labor, uh, when we talk about the workforce crisis, what is it and what, did, what do we need to do about wow. it? Wow, um, so many things. I
2: think we don't talk about the complexity of it. And the solutions I keep seeing in the media are we need patient ratios or we need more nurses. And it's not that simple. And I think we have to stop going to simple solutions to a very complex problem and really address the underlying issues of training, competency evaluation, and career pathing for clinicians and you can't have ratios if you don't have people and we have to solve what that care model looks like and then determine what the safe number of people to do that is. But I think if we're just going to this sort of ratio of patient to clinicians, it's just not gonna work in our current environment. So I don't think there's enough talk about how do we rethink the care model instead of just throw more
0: people at the problem. No, it's come up a lot in that the reason people are talking about nurse to patient ratio is because they wanna maximize patient engagement and give a little bit more time balance back to nurses, which I think is always gonna be the goal, but it's really the wrong bottleneck to go through. It's, it's going to lead us off a cliff. Whereas let's talk about how do we get more time back to nurses and how do we give more time to patients? And to your point, that's a, that's a different set of questions. Well, yeah. We and,
2: and we've done, I mean, there's, an, there's a, two articles out there. One from 2009 that one of my mentors from Kaiser did called the time in motion study. And they found 36% of a nurse's time is hunting and gathering information in people. 36% of a 12 hour shift, four hours of a 12 hour shift is spent hunting and gathering stuff. Technology can help solve that. Workflow can help solve that. Team-based care can help solve that. If you can give four hours back to a nurse, you can do amazing (laughs) things. Overworking would be a myth at that point because you'd have time to do the things that you don't have time for. So I think those are the things we need to start addressing as well as thinking about what safe care looks like.
1: Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you for joining Paul and I here on the healthcare labor crisis series. Thank you as well for for the work you're doing around the country and continuing to raise these critical issues and look forward to continued conversation. And again, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Microdosing. If you'd like more content like this, go to our website at md-pod.com. And that will triage you to all the common podcast platforms and social media pages to follow us.